Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Last Archive a history of truth. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. Shelves stocked with proof and all around the clutter of clues. I haven't been down here in the last archive for a while, but Jill's stopping by later, and I promised her I'd keep it clean, which, uh, well, for starters, there's a car in the middle of the room. Is that a DeLorean from Back to the Future? Cool. I'll deal with that later. May as well start small with this stack of old stencils. Welcome, people from the future. March 9th, 1982. Weird. And what's this sleigh doing over here by these candles? Hmm. There's a plaque. Manufactured by H.G. Wells. Ah, it's turning on. The date on the dial, it's changing. February 2020? Oh, no. There's no going back now. So step across the threshold to a highway in California on February 17th of that cursed year. Looks like we could be being pulled by oxen right now. (laughs) Except it would smell better. I actually think we'd move faster. In February 2020, I went to California with Jill Lepore, host emeritus of The Last Archive, and her youngest son, Oliver. 
we rented a 2017 red Camaro convertible for work. Like, this is overpowered for our purposes because we're currently going, what, 10 miles an hour? We're not quite at 10 yet, but we're going to pick up speed. Is the heat on at max? Shut up, it's so cold in here. Oliver, don't do that. I'm so cold. You don't it's understand. really not that cold. We were out in California because we were recording the final episode of our first season. The convertible was Oliver's idea, very California. But it wasn't really top-down weather. It's so we cold! Are Massachusetts. Not cold at all. You're I just scared. The first episode of the season was in Vermont. Yeah, it's Where true. you also we... maintain a presence. <laughs> we were researching ideas about predicting the future. Computers, big data, time capsules, that kind of thing. We wanted to see the place that future was being made, Silicon Valley. So we headed west in our red Camaro. We were on a quest to figure out who killed Truth. And we're going to go try to reconstruct some of that story to understand how, I don't know, all the world became California in the 1950s? That was a good explanation. The tape is totally unusable. <laughs> it's just like blowing out my ears with wind right now. The episode ended up being a lot about California, archives, and the fantasy of predicting the future. We spent a lot of time in the old church offices of the Internet Archive. But there was one other stop we made that trip that we didn't include in the final thing, to dig for another forgotten piece of computer history. The Yahoo Time Capsule. Yahoo! When was the last time you went to the Yahoo homepage? I'm going to guess that it was sometime before 2006. Back then, Yahoo had been the biggest website on the internet for years. Millions of people visited its homepage every month, totaling billions of views. Then, one day, a portal appeared on that homepage to a time capsule. Yahoo had hired an artist to make an anthropological account of the internet in 2006. Users could upload photos, videos, text, whatever they wanted. This, I know it just sounds like any social media, but the Yahoo time capsule was before Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, when Facebook was just a thing on some college campuses. This Yahoo thing felt new and exciting, and billions of people would have seen it. Hundreds of thousands of people made entries. Then, a little under a month after it opened, the portal closed. The contents of the capsule were beamed via laser into outer space, downloaded on a Mac Mini hard drive, and sent to the Smithsonian. Yahoo planned to open it 14 years later, on the 25th anniversary of the day the company was incorporated, at a moment in time when, of course, Yahoo would still be on top and everything would be normal and cool. They put a date in the sand. March of 2020. I read about all this in January of that year, and it sounded hilarious to me. We thought maybe we could see them open it on our trip out west, except it seemed like everybody at Yahoo had just forgotten about it. I kept emailing Verizon, Yahoo's new parent company, but they didn't respond at first. When I reached the original artist, he said nobody had been in touch with him about the opening. And then, weeks after we got back from that trip, lockdowns began. The world changed dramatically overnight. Nothing planned in the before felt right anymore. We dropped the idea of the Yahoo time capsule, changed our episode, 
We moved on, the world moved on. But for some reason, in the corner of my mind, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems sometimes lately like we don't know anything at all anymore. I'm Ben Natafafri. For our season finale, I want to reckon with that time capsule, and something that I think a lot of us experienced during the first year of the pandemic. Time started to feel different. And I know I wasn't the only one feeling this way, because all of a sudden, everyone around me was watching and reading all these time-bending, time-travel stories. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Outer Range, Sea of Tranquility, Outlander, This Time Tomorrow, anything in the Marvel multiverse. It's like we're living in a time-travel golden age. But why? You know how on this podcast we've always been chasing that question, who killed truth? Today, I've got a different question. What happened to time? One of the weirdest things about time travel stories is they haven't been around very long. The science fiction writer H.G. Wells basically started the genre in 1895 with his book The Time Machine. I read it a few years ago, but if I'm being honest, I've known about it since I was eight years old, because it was on an episode of Wishbone. What's the story, Wishbone? What's this your dream? If you've never seen Wishbone, it's a PBS children's show where a talking dog reenacts literary classics. Most of what I know about the classics, I learned first on Wishbone. So if we're talking time travel, I'm thinking season one, episode 23, Bark to the Future, an episode written by a young Mo Rocca. The dog plays the time traveler. The hero of our story is a man who will defy convention. He is a man who will use technology to redefine travel. In Bark to the Future, as in the time machine, an inventor claims he's got a new machine that can move through the fourth dimension. Time. I was probably in the second grade when I saw this. I love time travel stories now, but this, I think, was the first one I ever came across. Wishbone, it turns out, was sticking pretty closely to the 19th century source material. Just with dogs, not people. This, by the way, is the dog's voice. Have I really traveled to the year 802,701? People like to say there are only something like seven plots for every story. Plots people have been reusing since forever. You know them. Rags to riches, the hero's journey, overcoming the monster, the quest. Okay, maybe it's all a little schematic. Exactly seven? But still... It's weird to have this big new story, time travel, come out of nowhere in the 1890s. People have explained that in a few ways. But what it all amounts to is that at the turn of the century, the 1890s when H.G. Wells was writing, people had a sense that they were living in a historic time. Not just because the 20th century was starting, but also because industrialization seemed to have sped up the pace of history. Things were changing so fast. Suddenly there were machines for everything. Why not a time machine for time travel? It didn't seem so crazy, especially since a lot of those machines had made it possible to travel at speeds that just a few decades before had been impossible. Like travel by train. Trains collapsed distance and altered people's sense of time. For instance, it used to take about 10 days to get from London to Edinburgh by horse-drawn stagecoach, 
But by the late 19th century, you could board a train in London, stop for lunch in York, gossip about the Royal Baccarat scandal of 1890, and step off in Edinburgh a mere eight and a half hours later. The speed of travel changed how people thought about time, and not just because trains moved quickly. Imagine the world before the 19th century, before trains and telegraph lines and telephones. Back then, time was a local thing. You'd set your clock to the town clock. Depending on where in the world you were, you might even have an entirely different calendar. But there was no sense that whatever time it was in one town should match up exactly with the time in another town. Until trains and telegraphs and all sorts of machines started to connect those towns together for trade and travel, and it became necessary to standardize time across them. Public time became an absolute, precise thing. But as soon as time became rigid, it began to unravel. Einstein came up with his theory of special relativity in part through a thought experiment about clocks on trains. And then all this renegotiation of time fueled the time travel genre, from H.G. Wells right up to Bark to the Future. Stories about the malleability of time and the feeling of being in history. This is the problem of time. I'm hungry now, but snack time is later. I'm not saying that as an eight-year-old sprawled on the floor after school, I was thinking about how the time travel genre was a way of metabolizing rapid historical change. But you can't watch one of these stories without thinking about time just a little differently. These stories chip away at that standardized public time, and they restate a feeling most of us have privately that was more publicly shared centuries ago. Time isn't a rigid straight line that works the same for you as it does for me. Wishbone is a 30-minute long show. Back in the 90s, watching it was, to me, a major event. Rewatching now, it felt like it passed in the blink of an eye. Part of that's just getting used to hour-long prestige TV. But most of it is that when I was eight, afternoons felt the way days do to me now. So there's a history of a feeling about time baked into time travel stories. Something personal. I wanted to figure out what that was. And I found my answer by doing a kind of time travel myself. To a party for time travelers. On March 9th, 1982, in Baltimore. That party, after the break. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight-Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, 
How can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1960, H.G. Wells's The Time Machine was adapted into a blockbuster film. It's not a good movie. But it was a big movie, and a lot of people saw it, including a little boy named Richard Trisno Ellsbury. It was his bark to the future. And the movie, like, totally blew my mind. I was, like, seven years old. Richard grew up in a quiet, middle-class home in Baltimore in the 1960s. His dad worked for the IRS. His mom was a part-time secretary who wanted to be an artist. Richard was a dreamy kid and a bit obsessive. He kept thinking about that movie, especially the first time the time traveler gets his machine to work. The traveler jumps just a couple hours into the future, and everything looks the same, except the candles he lit just before he left have all burned down to the wick. I would like lie in bed awake at night and think about those candles burning down. And it was just, it was just spectacular, you know. Richard wanted to know if time travel would ever be possible. One day, he had a realization. What if we were a few lifetimes away from the invention of a time machine? 
If someone invented time travel in the future, they could go whenever and wherever they wanted. But they very likely would not come check in with Richard in Baltimore in the 1960s. How could he get them to come to him? And then he had an idea. Suppose we invited people from the future to come visit us, and it seemed very logical to me. It, 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 and now it, it still seems logical to me. This idea became a lifelong obsession, and it grew in his mind into something totally wild. A party for time travelers. Maybe if Richard made the party big enough, fun enough, absolutely legendary enough that it got into the historical record and centuries on people were still reading about it, well, he might wind up with some surprising guests. It's a, it's a logical idea. Richard thought about this for years. When he grew up and graduated art school, he was part of Baltimore's wacky conceptual art scene in the 1970s. He was living in a rundown 20-room mansion with three or four other artists, throwing parties, parades, making weird art, wearing black trench coats with oversized red buttons. And always, he was thinking about his time travel party. He decided to set a date. So first of all, the date was chosen because of an astronomical event called a syzygy that, that was known to, to be coming in 1982, which was an alignment of a lot of planets. It was going to be in March, and then I selected the night of the full moon, which would be March 9th of 1982. Once he had the date nailed down, he had to figure out how to get that date into the historical record. I love this part, the madcap rigor of it. It's like sort of a joke, but then not really a joke at all. But that was kind of the nature of what we were doing, was trying to figure out possible placements in history that could somehow end up in an archive somewhere. Artist Doug Retzler. He was part of an organization Richard started to manage all this, the Chrononautic Society. Richard had created a stencil, Welcome People from the Future, March 9th, 1982. They used that stencil to spray paint the date everywhere, including the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And so we went down there and we were about to spray, spray it onto the base of the, the sculpture that was outside of that. And we were apprehended by the um, National Archives police and detained. They wanted to get in the news. They wanted the story of the party and that date to be in the historical record. And they had people working around the country trying to spread the word. In 1980, Richard bought an ad in Art Forum magazine, inviting people from the future to come to a party on March 9th, 1982. It said, welcome people from the future in huge letters. An influential LA art magazine called Wet Magazine ran an article titled, Future Humans Read This, giving the date and inviting future readers to come back to 1982 and boogie. Richard even wrote a letter to famed astrologist Linda Goodman, who reprinted it in her best-selling book, Linda Goodman's Love Signs, which is still in print. She called it a perfect example of Aquarian thinking. There were plans for parties in Los Angeles, New Mexico, and Montreal. But Richard still needed a venue for the main event in Baltimore. And he got his chance when a new bookstore came to town and decided to set up shop in a glamorous, abandoned old beauty parlor. Second Story Books. The place was a uh, go-to destination for a, let's say, evolving um, counterculture. Alan Stipek, owner of the store, 
which was staffed entirely by Richard and his conceptual artist friends. I was the wrong person to own a store with this kind of culture. The artists became a problem for Alan. They were always throwing parties, sleeping in the art installations, or stealing his books. There were two separate cultures trying to run a store in concert. And that concert, it was, it was like having kazoos and violins. I completely fell in love with recreating the crazy world of this bookstore, I have to admit. So indulge me for a minute. It's like if Empire Records were an episode of The X-Files set at MoMA, but in Baltimore. I spoke to a bunch of people who worked at or hung out around the shop, including the artist Lori Stepp, who seemed to confirm the kazoos and violins thing. I mean, what did you expect, you know? Despite the chaos, for a beautiful moment, the store was at the center of the Baltimore art scene. Allen Ginsberg read there. So did a lot of famous poets and artists. John Waters, the director, was always hanging around. It was on national lists as one of the best bookstores in the country. The mayor of Baltimore would start the city's parades from there. And it was totally beautiful. It had 30-foot-high ceilings, twin staircases up from the ground floor to a balcony, an art gallery on the second floor, and 12-foot-high gilt mirrors all over the place. It was perfect. And when Alan Stipek decided to open a bar in the basement, Richard saw his golden opportunity. He suggested that the bar's opening night should be on March 9th, 1982, the night of his time-traveler landing party. I do remember thinking serving alcohol to poets wasn't a great idea. (laughs) Alan agreed to host the Time Traveler Party, and Richard got to work planning the most legendary party of Baltimore's history. After years of thinking, Richard's big day was finally arriving. The syzygy, the alignment of the planets, was actually a big deal not just for Richard. It was like Y2K light. There'd been a best-selling book called The Jupiter Effect that predicted that the alignment of the planets would lead to a whole bunch of natural disasters. Earthquakes, floods, nuclear meltdowns. The local news in Baltimore covered the astrological angle by going to the director of the planetarium, Dr. Zerpoli, and asking for his expert opinion. You can see the planets are not in a straight line. They're in kind of a crazy zigzag line across the the sky. Um, There's nothing unusual about it. But who cares? Even the newscasters wanted to believe. But if Zerpoli and the majority of astronomers in the world are wrong, well, we'll see tomorrow. Bill Seiler, New Scene 2. A few of the chrononauts drove out to a mesa in New Mexico for the big night. Crews around the world started setting up their spinoff parties. But most of the team was in Baltimore. Richard and the staff of Second Story Books got the flagship party started. And when evening came around, the scene was unprecedented. So it was like, we're here, you know. And I, be- I believe that the mayor came by that day. The mayor brought in searchlights, uh, hooked them up to, to try to catch the, uh, the interplanetary travelers as they came down to Earth. Oh, it, it was crazy. It was full of people. So I was on top of this mesa, lighting flares and documenting the star and the, and the different Venuses rising. There was a, a, a nude couple who claimed that they were Adam and Eve. I was getting really nervous because uh, we couldn't really tell who was doing what. Jello all over the floor, and people were like writhing around. Kirby had a television set on his yeah, head. Kirby. Are we the people from the future? Will we see our future selves? Not only did the mayor stick around, 
but he stayed there the whole night and led a conga line of people up the stairs of the uh, Washington Monument at 12 o'clock. The New York Times sent a reporter to cover this madness. And I swear to you, I am not making this up. The Times reporter at the Time Traveler Party was named Benjamin Franklin. They ran out of alcohol. The party just kept going. It was amazing. Except... So, did any time travelers come to the party? We don't know. I mean, uh, you know, there, there wasn't any indication that there definitely was time travelers there. That was Richard again. When I talked to the Second Story bookstore management about this, they had a slightly different take. I will say just uh, for the, mostly for Ben's sake, that I'm totally open to the idea that the uh, time travelers erased all of that from our, our memories. Okay, so probably no time travelers. But the party was incredible. Still, good things never last. And a little more than a year later, the store closed. It was just untenable. Kazoos and violins. But when I talked to Richard about the whole thing, I wasn't so much after whether or not the experiment worked, as I was trying to understand why so many people were drawn to it, and what he meant by it. It seems to me like you're not a person who's necessarily like, time travel is real and this will prove it. You're more a person who's like, why have we closed our minds to so many things? Is I that think that's a that's a that's a pretty correct statement, yeah. I see it as fun and funny, but it's also kind of dead serious. I think that the limitations that people have on their thinking, on their imaginations, um, keeps us sort of, you know, enclosed and trapped in a lot of pretty lousy stuff in this world, you know? And if they felt, if they felt more self-empowered to, to use their imagination and to like follow their, their dreams, not only would they be better off, but other people would be better off. Somewhere in between dead serious and fun and funny. That is the exact feeling that time travel stories express. And this party wasn't just a rave. It was, as Lori reminded me, a work of art. I mean, it's all about raising questions, you know, and making making you think. So, um, but I do remember that sort of, um, you know, like, maybe... (laughs) maybe they'll show up. How will we know? You know, I mean, certainly now I'm like, are you the same person? (laughs) Like, if you met yourself, would it be like meeting the same person? I think it's a great conceptual piece. I really, I really do. Time travel stories and time travel parties raise all these big questions about what happens to us as we move through time. But they also ask a big question about what we would change if we could go back. They're often stories about regret and loneliness in time. The time traveler is almost always lonely. If you visit the past, you know how everything's going to turn out, how people die, when wars break out, who winds up with whom. If you go to the future, your world is gone, replaced. That's why I love this party. It's about bringing people together, calling out across the void to the future, and welcoming it back to the past. One of the definitions for me of conceptual art is is that it carries some content, whether or not you're you're there to experience it or not. It's participate, yeah, people participating in the idea. See, you're part of the you're part of it. You you being here is part of it. 
Yeah. And I this also, is what we were going for yes. 40 years ago. One day, Ben, who's not even born yet, he's going to come back and ask good questions. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to have been part of whatever weird time loop this is. To me, the party is not really about time travelers in the future. It's about living in the present, which is a hard thing to do. Because as soon as you're thinking about a present moment, it's already in the past. The party seems to me like a moment when everyone was really aware of that. Aware of where you are in time. That one day, your crazy bookstore full of conceptual artists will be gone. And so will a lot of your friends. And so will the old you. It's a message in a bottle to the future. Just like a time capsule. We'll be right back. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. 
You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're in Mountain View, 0.7 miles away from the Googleplex. Isn't it gonna? Doesn't it seem like you're entering a wormhole? Like, just because it's called the Googleplex? Oh, yeah. You know they yeah. used to have this thing that they never. Back on February 17th, 2020, Jill, her youngest son Oliver, and I drove all around San Francisco in that bright red convertible for a long time. We were looking, among other things, for that Yahoo time capsule that archive of the early internet. We were curious about it because it was strangely like an early social media thing before social media was really mainstream. Uploading yourself was still new for people. What did that look like right before it became the thing we all did all the time? We wanted to know. We saw Facebook in the Googleplex, but we never found the Yahoo time capsule. Still, we're pretty sure that we're the reason Verizon, Yahoo's new parent company, remembered it even existed. Because right after we started emailing about it that January, the artist who created the Time Capsule project said Verizon reached out to him. And then a week or so after we left San Francisco, Yahoo staff got the Mac Mini they'd saved it on out of storage and hauled it out on stage during their 25th birthday party. Nobody could find the password, but luckily someone had it written down somewhere. The password was the word paper. And making its return in cinematic fashion, a digital time capsule. After sitting in the Smithsonian for years, Yahoo's 25th birthday marked the perfect time to take a glimpse at history. I gotta say, watching the chipper video Verizon made about the event, I'm happy we weren't there. During the heady days of the early 2000s, this thing was beamed into outer space and projected on canyon walls in New Mexico. Now, it was just carried out in a box during an all-staff. Ah, the passage of time. It kind of feels like you're going through someone's home videos that you don't know. But it was really just kind of looking at a slice of personal lives of these people that we never met that were Yahoo users once upon a time. 36,548 messages, 97,177 pictures, hundreds of thousands of slices of life, two friends at a soccer game with flower necklaces, someone skiing in a cow suit, a teen wielding two lightsabers, a note that read, I love Anita. I'll tell her after I finish my MBA in France. All these messages to the future met with a shrug. But I couldn't stop thinking about it because of how utterly unimaginable the world that time capsule landed in was from the one it left just 14 years before. The week we were in California, the number of worldwide deaths from SARS-CoV-2 passed 1,000. A day later the WHO gave it a new name, COVID-19. On March 2nd, Yahoo opened up the time capsule at a big in-person event. A couple weeks later, 90% of Verizon's staff started working from home. When the lockdown started, I kept working on the last archive from my apartment. My fiance Julia and I were in New York. 
I remember running in the streets and holding my breath when I passed someone. I'm embarrassed to say we scrubbed down groceries. Suddenly, everything changed. And then, nothing was changing. All the old clockwork fell away. No more the next trains in three minutes, pickups at four, meet you at five. For anyone lucky enough to be working from home, it was just big, long days, each the same as the one before. After a little while, we moved to Julia's mom's house in Connecticut. I watched a nest of bluebirds fledge, and another move in and start the process all over again. I fell in love with birds. I was also listening to a lot of ambient music. I came to realize birds and ambient music were just two different ways of thinking about time. Cycles of natural time, like tree swallows showing up on the same day years apart. And then music without any meter. Long, spare, vast like an ocean. For some people, it was like time had just stopped. The days seemed unbelievably long. For others, they sped by. People started calling everything before March 2020 the before time. They didn't usually mention an after. The psychologist talked about that on NPR. We are aware of time. We're aware of the fragility of time. And we're aware of what happens when your time to do the things you want is taken away from you. And I think that that is the real thing that will have changed is how people value time. Valuing time. That was part of what freaked me out about the Yahoo time capsule. How near it came to being lost. How pointless it all seemed in the end. And just how totally inconceivable everything in between closing and opening that box had been. Like a lot of people during the pandemic, I had so much time. And all I could do was think about how it was slipping away. So it's this brick apartment building, smack in the middle of Cambridge, right? That looks like maybe we can go to that main door. And then we have to press a button on the intercom. Three years after that first pandemic month, on March 28th, 2023, Jill and I met up in Cambridge to go see a time machine. Hello? Hey, Stuart, it's Jill and Ben. Yeah, so I'll buzz you in and go to the third floor and take a left, okay? Great, thanks. I told Jill I wanted to talk about time travel stories. Jill told me she had a crafty neighbor named Stuart who had built a perfect replica of a TARDIS, Doctor Who's time machine. Look, it's perfect. It's pretty good. I got, they were rebuilding the house next door. Uh-huh. And I got all the wood for free. <laughs> and that's why it's deteriorating. <laughs> Doctor Who is a 60-year-old BBC show which is still running. The Doctor is the last of an alien race called Time Lords. Each week, he travels in his time machine, which looks like a blue police box. Usually when Doctor Who shows up, it's because something's gone terribly wrong in time, and he has to save the world. It's a mad, zany, beautiful, sad show. It's also a show, though, about how disorienting time travel is. The Doctor is a little addled and very lonely. We wanted to see this perfect TARDIS. Just the right shade of blue on a wood-framed phone booth. Stuart had built it on the roof of his apartment building in Cambridge, which had entailed some compromises. The dimension of the base, it should have been like a four-foot square, but I was, I was constrained by the dumpster next door. Uh-huh. So it's on wheels, though. It can be moved around. Uh-huh. And, um, well, I mean, also it can teleport. Right. So. Oh, that's true. Stuart gave us the keys. Oh my god, it's really the key, and you have the little TARDIS on it. And it's the real yellow lock. So where would you go if you could 
if it was working, if it wasn't temporarily disabled? Oh, I would probably go to the future. I guess, I, yeah, when would you go is what I'm supposed when? to ask. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, 50 years to start? Yeah. Like Never really thought about that. But, yeah. Do you have any predictions for what you would see in 50 years? No. I also stopped watching the news about a year ago. Oh, good Couldn't for take you. it. Are, yeah. you, are you still watching Doctor Who, though? Yeah, I watch it. It turned out that this particular TARDIS was full of stacked lawn chairs and buckets. It is true, the inside is not as exciting as the outside <laughs> in this case. <laughs> we left Stuart and his amazing TARDIS and headed back to Jill's house down the street. We set up in the kitchen to talk about time. This isn't really about Doctor Who, but I like I do. I'm very fascinated by the idea that messages can travel across time. Like I just really like that, and um, like that's why I like going to an archive. Like it's a message that somebody left, and now I can see it. So when I was a freshman in college, I got a letter in the mail that was from my mother, but inside the envelope, I thought it was just a letter from my mother, but inside the envelope was a letter. In my, it was an, another envelope, and it had my handwriting in it. It was addressed to me by me, and it was this letter that my high school English teacher had. Everybody write to yourself four years in the future, which was like new then. Although I, I talked to students all the time. I was like, oh yeah, we all have to do that now. But it was really, it really affected me to get this because I was like, this is a completely different person. I don't remember writing it, and then I had access to this whole other view of the world, and like that's why I like doing history. But so, what was striking about the letter when you got it? Um, so I was 14 when I read it and 19 when I got it. And if you can think about yourself at those two ages, there's a lot of changes. And I didn't remember what I was like at 14. I probably now can't remember what I was like at 19, but I'm a lot closer to who I am now. But when I was 14, I could actually imagine who I was when I was 19 because the letter that I wrote at 14 was sort of perfectly pitched to that 19-year-old self and was a very effective harangue. Like, the letter was, like, I know you will not actually have done the following things that you really should have done by now, and I'm really mad at you for not doing them. So if you haven't done them yet, like, get them the fuck done. And it was furious and scathing and seething and passionate and urgent and terrifying and I then I did all the things like I got the letter and I was like oh my god I guess she's right I didn't I thought I was going to do those things but I also thought I might not sending messages to the future this seemed to me a perfect segue to my old hobby horse the reason I wanted to do this story is because of the Yahoo time capsule Mm mm-hmm which, as you may recall, is a mm-hmm. story I've been unable to let go of. <laughs> um, but I, because I think for me, one of the things that expresses the weirdness of the pandemic and 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 time and all of that is the fact that, you know, two weeks before lockdown, two or three weeks, we were on the last trip that I took, um, like traveling around sort of like nothing was wrong with the growing sense that something was maybe wrong. I do think about that trip as a kind of, crazy hurrah <laughs> last hurrah turned out um because it was a madcap trip and there was all this weirdness around the matrix being shot in san francisco and we rented this crazy car with oliver and then we locked that interview in a vault like it became its own time capsule every time we had a brainstorm meeting for years after that trip 
I kept bringing up the Yahoo time capsule. I felt like it was finally time for me to explain myself. I wonder if there's something about like, like a, like a feeling of historical disjunction or like epical change where you suddenly feel like things that are somewhat recent in chronological time are actually just like totally different eras. Mm-hmm. And, and if part of the way people express that feeling is through stories about time mm-hmm. travel and being out of time. Well, one thing that I noticed a lot during the pandemic is that I think it meant that everyone had a sense of living in historical time. That is to say that there was not just this is February, but this is a specific time in the history of humanity or the history of the planet. And that I don't think most people walk around with that every day. Yeah. Although I do think most historians do. Like, that's part of the job. Like, where are we in time? That sense of orientation is, it's kind of a pain, right? But, like, you're kind of in that a lot. Like, so I remember thinking how weird it was that everybody was thinking that way when it used to just be, like, I could talk to my colleagues that way. It's good to live in the present. But it's a little crazy-making to be constantly aware of the historical contingency of everything. It's like putting a window between yourself and the world. And it reminded me a little bit of um, a friend of mine who uh, was living with us when she was in medical school. And she talked about the day that in, you first um, do start dissecting a human cadaver in anatomy class. And it's like you cross a bridge and then the people that are on the other side of that bridge are other human beings who have also dissected a cadaver. And you're completely separate from all other humans because you have seen the inside of humans. And it's transformative. You be- you then belong to that guild, but you even if you don't never become a doctor, like you'll always belong to that guild because you, you are one of the people who has seen the inside of people. And I think of historians as people who've seen the kind of inside of time. Um, and so then it was just weird, weird during the pandemic that it was like everybody had seen the inside of a human body. Like, it wasn't like, oh, great, everybody now knows what it what this feels like. It was more like, oh, everybody carries the same burden. I remember how during the pandemic, people said they started keeping journals because things just months in the past felt like they came from a different time. But the main reason I think there were so many stories about time and time travel these last few years is that time travel thinking is the same as pandemic thinking. You step on a crack in the sidewalk, and suddenly you've changed the whole course of history. You cough on a subway, and suddenly you've risked the life of someone's immunocompromised mom. Everything's tangled up in everything else. Richard, the time travel party guy, said something about this towards the end of our call. I just wanted to mention, because it's important to me, uh, the song by the Beatles, I've, I've Just Seen a Face, and I, there's one line in that, which I think is so brilliant. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way. And like, there's this couplet, you know, this like simple line. And it, it's, it, it really encapsulates the whole idea. Am I going to answer the door or not answer the door? Am I going to make the phone call or not make the phone call? And we're constantly inventing new lives for ourselves. You know, you know, where, where did COVID come from? You know, Somebody probably did something wrong. That kind of thinking, it can be totally paralyzing. But I think in a spirit of acceptance and letting go, it's also beautiful. 
all the future depends on even the smallest moments now. Even if you can't speak to the future, it still depends on you. Okay, it's 12.28 on Wednesday, March 29th, and I am on the Eagle Scout bench just to the left when you come into the main area outside the Dedham Public Library in Massachusetts, just off Norfolk Street, waiting for time travelers. After Jill and I wrapped up our conversation, I went back to my parents' house to get my things. They live in Dedham, Massachusetts. I was on my way back to New York, but before I left, I wanted to throw my own party for time travelers, just to see what it felt like. I took down the latitude and longitude of that bench at the library, just in case they don't have a record of the street names in the future, and I also wrote down the time that I was there. I'm not a proud man, so I'll admit it. I was slightly embarrassed to be sitting alone on a bench holding a microphone in front of a public library at noon on a Wednesday. So if it sounds like I'm speaking out of the corner of my mouth, I am. 42.247793, comma, negative 71.1759470. History is not time travel, because the past is actually past. And all you have left of it are these bits and pieces of messages from the people who were to the people who are. Yahoo time capsules, parties for time travelers, letters to yourself. I've spent a lot of time with those bits and pieces this season of The Last Archive. And I didn't plan it this way, but I came to realize that a lot of these stories are about moments when people became connected in new ways. The dawn of social network theory, the rise of the telephone network, human population science, time travel. Moments when people came up with new ways of thinking about how everything was bound up together, networked. Like any moment in time and everything that follows. Everyone you see who have this question of is that person from the future, which of course is ridiculous, but there is something sort of destabilizing about it. I'd assume this would be a party of one. Not because I'm sure there'll never be time travel, but more because a few people have tried this now and it never quite seems to work. After Richard, there was a party for time travelers at MIT in 2005, Destination Day in Perth, Australia the same year. Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist, even threw a birthday party in 2009, but didn't invite anyone until after the event. Nobody came. And same for me. Okay, it's 12.36, and I'm gonna head home now. That was the window for time travelers. Saw a man in a black zip-up with a bald patch walk by. I see a man with a shock of white hair and a black shirt approaching. The movers left, but no sign of time travelers. I walked home to catch my train. It was a sunny, warm, late March day. The pandemic felt something like it was over. Someone had put new mulch in the churchyard, and the church clock was running four minutes fast. The birds were out. The daffodils and crocuses were coming up. Richard is restarting the Chrononautic Society, so later I sent him my party's coordinates. But I don't think it matters whether anyone knows where or when I was. Besides, even if you wrote it down, saved it on a hard drive, locked it in a box, eventually, somebody's probably going to forget that password. That's okay. The Last Archive is written and hosted by me, Ben Nadafafri. 
It's produced by me and Lucy Sullivan and edited by Sophie Crane. Jake Gorski is our engineer. Fact-checking on this episode by Arthur Gombertz. Sound design by Jake Gorski and me. Additional music by Corntooth. Our executive producers are Sophie Crane and Jill Lepore. Special thanks on this episode to Amal Dorai, Jacob Goldstein, and Sarah Nix. If you're a lover of time travel stories and time travel history, check out The Time Traveler's Almanac from Tor Books and Time Travel, A History by James Glick. At Pushkin, thanks to our executive team, including Jacob Weisberg, Malcolm Gladwell, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Lital Malad, and Greta Cohn. And to our business team, including Carrie Brody, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Royston Beserve, Jasmine Perez, and Blair Jilks. Our marketing team includes Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Sean Carney, and Brian Srebrenik, with operations and licensing support from Nicole Optenbosch, Maya Koenig, Daniela Lacan, Jake Flanagan, Farad DeGrange, and Owen Miller. Thanks to everyone at Pushkin. For a bibliography, further reading, and a transcript and teaching guide to this episode, head to thelastarchive.com. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. And please sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm slash newsletter. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ben Nadefafri. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat-earth theory, and why some still believe the Earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.